Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek, and I am joined, uh, very gratefully joined on short notice by Lawrence Browers, Associate Fellow at the Russia and Eurasia Program at Chatham House, author of Armenia and Azerbaijan, Anatomy of a Rivalry, which was published by Edinburgh University Press uh, in 2019. And uh, Lawrence, first of all, thank you. I know this is very short notice. Thank you for uh, giving us your time. Well, thank you very much for inviting me onto the uh, onto the podcast. So obviously, people have probably already figured out, given the title of your book, we are here to talk about this week's events uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh and Azerbaijan. I think to start off, and I, I'm going to ask you to compress an awful lot of uh, background into a relatively short amount of time, but tell people... What is Nagorno-Karabakh? What what is this region? Why is it so controversial? What can you and, and maybe give us sort of a thumbnail sketch of its history? Let's say up through the the nineteen nineties war and the at the collapse of the Soviet Union. Sure. Well, Nagorno-Karabakh is uh, a mountainous region that is uh, located in the recognized borders of the Republic of Azerbaijan, but it is uh, historically uh, as well as today. Uh, very much a contested region. So the contestation uh, around the water Karabakh began when ideas of nationalism started to uh, percolate into uh, the Russian Empire. And uh, Armenians and Azerbaijanis uh, kind of experimented and, and, and kind of became more familiar with a national uh, imagination, uh, impacts of nationalism, um, and started to imagine uh, ethnic homelands. Uh, and their imagined homelands essentially overlap in Nagorno-Karabakh, and, and not only actually uh, in that one region. Um, so uh, there was a, a, an initial outburst uh, of violence in the early 20th century in 1905-1906 in the aftermath of the Russian Revolution of 1905. That was a communal violence uh, between Armenians and Azerbaijanis very much in a Russian imperial setting. But I think we could really perhaps date the Karabakh conflict to 1918, uh, when Armenia and Azerbaijan first uh, appeared as uh, sovereign uh, republics. Uh, there had been uh, medieval kingdoms uh, in the Armenian case, um, but this was the first sort of modern emergence of Armenian and Azerbaijani nation states. And they contested their, their boundaries in a number of different locations. Um, there was intense contestation uh, in uh, Karabakh, uh, where the local Armenian population uh, resisted incorporation uh, into the uh, new Azerbaijani uh, Republic. There was a lot of, uh, of violence, a kind of uh, insurgency, counterinsurgency. There were also negotiations that took place, uh, some of them very much under duress. Uh, an agreement was finally reached uh, for Karabakh to be uh, incorporated into Azerbaijan. But then the Soviet Union swept in and retook the South Caucasus. And uh, a very controversial, what would subsequently prove to be a very controversial decision uh, was taken uh, in July uh, of 1921 that established that Nagorno-Karabakh would become part of Soviet Azerbaijan. Uh, and this reversed an apparent decision the previous day that it would go to Armenia. Uh, so, you know, right there at the, at the beginning, the opening years and the formation of the Soviet Union, you've got this contested status uh, around you know, who does uh, Karabakh actually belong to. And that idea was contested at every interval when the Soviet Union went through a more liberal period. 
There would be petitions, there would be letter writing campaigns by Karabakh Armenians calling for their unification with Armenia. And when Go- uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, the uh, leader of the, uh, of the Soviet Union, declared his reform policy, uh, there was another such letter writing campaign. And then in, in February 1988, the local assembly called openly, uh, sent a letter basically to the Politburo calling for its unification with Armenia. Uh, which is the the conventional dating of uh, the inception of the modern phase of the conflict. I'll stop there. So we have, as you said, the Soviet Union sweeps in. This is all kind of frozen then, I guess. Uh, you know, everybody's part of one happy family in the Soviet Union. Uh, when the Soviet Union breaks apart at the end of the Cold War in the, the late, 90, or late 80s, early 90s, what happens to trigger conflict again over this region? Well, I think there was a perception in Karabakh, amongst the Karabakh Armenians, that with this declaration of glasnost, meaning transparency, and perestroika, meaning rebuilding, that Gorbachev had basically opened up uh, space for questioning of decisions uh, that were made early uh, in, the Soviet, in the period of, of Soviet history uh, and that there could be, you know, changes uh, made uh, in the light of some of those uh, uh, decisions, and so I think they, they they felt that they were pushing on uh, an open door. Uh, but almost immediately, uh, in the days following that petition for unification uh, with Armenia, uh, there were uh, there was a kind of a, a street uh, scuffle uh, involving a crowd of Azerbaijanis who were unhappy about this declaration. Uh, and two Azerbaijanis were actually killed uh, in that first uh, uh, street fight. Uh, and very quickly after that, uh, you saw pogroms uh, taking place in Sungait, which was an, an industrial city just outside Baku, um, uh, in which the local Armenian population uh, uh, was was targeted. And so what you see is that this communal violence uh, very quickly takes over uh, from uh, the, the political decision-making and creates this very difficult uh, environment uh, in which to resolve the conflict. The Soviet leadership tried various approaches, basically throwing money and resources at the problem. Uh, that didn't work. Uh, and then you have this kind of uh, accelerated dynamic of center collapse taking place over the next uh, three years. And then Armenia and Azerbaijan are basically reborn as independent states already at war, uh, effectively, with one another uh, in, in Karabakh. And that war comes out uh, with the Armenians, uh, or the, the Karabakh Armenians, at least, victorious and controlling not just Karabakh, but um, a pretty sizable chunk of territory around Karabakh, again, in the internationally recognized uh, or generally recognized, I suppose, borders of, of Azerbaijan. Can you talk a little bit about um, how that war ended and and what happened? What was sort of the position in the wake of that? And, and was, were there any negotiations about trading that territory back in return for uh, independence? Or what, what went on after the 1990s war between then and, and let's say, uh, the war in 2020 that, that really changed the, the status quo here? Sure. I, mean, I, I think it's really worth underlining that the Karabakh conflict uh, is quite distinctive from the others in its cohorts, the other uh, ethno-political conflicts that emerged around the same time in South Ossetia, Abkhazia, uh, Transnistria, 
uh, and Chechnya in the sense that it spilled over to such a dramatic extent. It was a, a war characterized by uh, numerous uh, human rights violations, massacres of civilian populations by, by both sides. Um, and it ends in this very dramatic, overwhelming Armenian military victory. As you say, Armenian forces end the war not only in control of almost the entirety of Nagorno-Karabakh, but this belt of territories, surrounding uh, territories. And I th it's really worth, again, uh, underlining also that we are talking about uh, an enclave geography. Nagorno-Karabakh is completely surrounded by Azerbaijani territory. Uh, and so to create that sort of geographic uh, contiguousness with Armenia, its patron state, involves a territorial politics of conquest. So beginning uh, in May 1992, uh, we see this process where the, the isolation and the enclave geography of Karabakh is broken down region by region, and you have this mass process of ethnic cleansing uh, taking place. These regions were almost entirely populated by ethnic Azerbaijanis, some 650,000 uh, all told in Karabakh and in the surrounding regions, who were all expelled from these regions. Um, you know, ethnic cleansing was something that also took place uh, when Azerbaijanis made military advances. So you have this, this really tragic track record that whenever territory has changed hands in this conflict, ethnic cleansing has taken place. So this overwhelming Armenian military victory creates these dilemmas in terms of the, the future of the negotiations. And I mean, to, to sort of simplify somewhat, uh, the essential transaction uh, that lay at the heart of the approach to the negotiations was a kind of a land for peace deal. So the idea was that essentially uh, Armenians would relinquish control of these occupied regions around Nagorno-Karabakh in return for some kind of agreement on the status of Karabakh that would be acceptable, not only to Armenia, of course, but to the Karabakh Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh. The negotiations were uh, taken over by the conference and then the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, uh, which was a multilateral organization, a key instrument in the post-Cold War security architecture of Europe, came out of the Helsinki Final Act. And we see this labyrinthine process uh, of negotiations uh, led by a structure called the Minsk Group. The Minsk Group is a group of states uh, led from 1997 by France, Russia, and the United States, who mediated between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan in kinder talks. A very long, involved uh, history of negotiations. And what we see over time uh, is that uh, the diplomacy of the Minsk Group becomes essentially rather meaningless. It becomes a performative uh, diplomacy enacted very far away from the region in global capitals uh, uh, in other continents um, and with very little engagement of societies. The Minsk Group became a, a byword for hyper-confidential, very top-down, uh, elite-focused uh, negotiations, uh, while at the same time, leaderships were promoting entirely contradictory uh, nationalistic uh, ideas within their own societies. Uh, so there was this huge you know, dis disjunction between uh, the content of the talks and the, the national 
a nationalist uh, formulae being promoted by the leaderships of both countries. At the same time, Azerbaijan starts its oil boom. And from roughly 2006, 2007, we see dramatic uh, oil revenues, petrodollars coming into Azerbaijani coffers. And it begins the process of the armament. And from 2014, we start to see regular violence uh, along the line of contact. In 2016, a four-day war. Uh, and uh, this eventually leads us uh, to 2020 and the Second Karabakh War. Before we get to that, uh, I, I want to talk in this interim period between the, the 1990s war and the 2020 war about the connections between the Armenian government and the government of the Karabakh region or Artsakh, the Artsakh Republic. Um, and in, in a couple of ways, uh, militarily, um, maybe because I know one of the claims that Azerbaijan, the Azerbaijani government keeps making is that uh, the regular Armenian military is involved in Karabakh and that's regularly denied uh, by the Armenian government. And maybe we could talk a little bit about those connections and where the, if there is a bright line between the Armenian military and the Karabakh defense force or, or um, you know, where that may become blurry. Um, and also politically, because, and in particular, just if you could talk about the salience of the Karabakh issue on Armenian politics, because we'll get into Nicole Pechinian's position in a bit, but but maybe, you know, talk about how they uh, stitched together in this interwar period or in, in uh, between, you know, period between the wars. Mm. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, question. Many, many contradictions here. Nagorno-Karabakh is distinct from some of the other efforts to establish uh, new republics, new states, because it was founded on a unification movement. The intention was never to establish a separate republic in Nagorno-Karabakh, but that discourse, that discursive frame, was essentially forced on the unification movement by the collapse of the Soviet Union. A unification movement uh, in the context of independent uh, Armenian and Azerbaijani states would look very much like an irredentist and therefore illegitimate endeavor. So there was this shift to a framing of a separate entity, the Nagorno-Karabakh Republic, that declared its independence in, in January 1992 from Azerbaijan. And then what we see is this emergence and development of what I would call a kind of tactical or performative sovereignty as a separate republic, as a separate state with some distance, uh, politically speaking, from Armenia, combined with strategic integration on almost any meaningful level, uh, including uh, the military. So the Nagorno-Karabakh Republic, despite being a very small entity with I mean, the, the official population, it's around about uh, 146,000, I think, prior to 2020, that's almost certainly uh, an inflated figure, nevertheless had you know, a full set of ministries, presidents, uh, you know, all of the accoutrements of uh, a nation state. And this was also true in the military sphere. So there has been this uh, self-proclaimed Nagorno-Karabakh defense army, which has, formally speaking, uh, a separate command uh, structure, as a separate entity, of course, it does have a distinct uh, operational space. Um, but at almost every other level, 
it was integrated strategically uh, with Armenian armed forces in terms of doctrine, in terms of personnel, uh, moving around at different levels between Armenia's armed forces and, uh, and the NKDA, the Nagorno-Karabakh Defense Army. So in a sense, what we had is this, it's a kind of strategic ambiguity. Armenia would uh, basically distance itself from the Nagorno-Karabakh Defense Army saying, you know, that's a separate entity. Uh, we are not responsible for that military force. And this is indeed a strategic ambiguity that has essentially been flipped and reversed by Azerbaijan since 2020. Azerbaijan is saying that any armed forces, any men at arms in Nagorno-Karabakh today are from the Republic of Armenia. So it's a very uh, sort of ambiguous development. And this was also complicated, further complicated, um, by leadership change uh, and, and structure uh, between Karabakh uh, and Armenia. So in, in 1998, uh, Robert Kocharyan, who had been uh, the first president, de facto president of the Nagorno-Karabakh Republic, became president of Armenia. And so we, we see this shift of uh, Karabakh Armenian leadership moving to Armenia and becoming uh, the leadership of, of, of the Republic of Armenia. And that coincides with a sort of a, a re, reformulation of the format of the Minsk group negotiations. In the early phases of those talks, Karabakh Armenians uh, participated uh, in the negotiations, along with Karabakh Azerbaijanis. Uh, I haven't mentioned that yet. I should have mentioned that earlier. There is a, was always a, a minority of Karabakh Azerbaijanis living in, in Karabakh. And they no longer participated in the talks from 1997-98. And so this creates also a sort of dysfunctionality in the Minsk group talks that you've got Armenia that basically says, well, Karabakh is a separate entity, nothing to do with us, is negotiating peace talks for the status of of Karabakh with Azerbaijan. So yeah, it it was a a very uh, ambiguous set of, of relationships in Armenia, there's a, a, a sense that Armenia had been kind of captured, in a way, uh, by this uh, Karabakh Armenian uh, leadership uh, and agenda. I think that might underestimate the extent to which there was you know, a lot of support for the, the, the Karabakh Armenian project. And this sort of uh, generates this evolution in the understanding of Armenia's borders and where Armenia stops and, and starts. And the way that I framed it in, in, in my book, Anatomy of a Rivalry, is that we get this concept of an augmented Armenia uh, as a maximalist territorial entity uh, comprising the Republic of Armenia, the Nagorno-Karabakh Republic, and the occupied territories that surround the, the Nagorno-Karabakh Republic. And, and so this, is, this becomes the dominant visual representation uh, of Armenia, and we see this evolving uh, sequence of categories used to describe the occupied territories. In the early years, they were described as a buffer zone, a security belt. Uh, but over time, they begin to become referred to as liberated territories, incorporated into uh, an Armenian homeland. And of course, this is uh, absolutely unacceptable and, and traumatic uh, for Azerbaijanis uh, bearing in mind uh, the 650-odd thousand people 
uh, who were ethnically cleansed uh, from those territories. So I think that we can come up now to the 2020 war. What happens in 2020? Why then? Uh, I know you you talked about Azerbaijan's remilitarization on the basis of its uh, its energy wealth, but why did it did did we come back to, to a full blown war in 2020? And why did it end? I mean, it ended with Azerbaijan largely regaining those peripheral areas, but not, um, you know, going too deep into Karabakh itself. Why did they stop there? Well, I guess we should start the story of the Second Karabakh War uh, in 2018 with the Velvet Revolution uh, in Armenia. So this was... uh, unexpected turn of events, an attempt to prolong the rule of Ser Sakisyan, uh, another Karabakh Armenian uh, who had succeeded Robert Kucharian as president of Armenia, uh, introduced a new constitution, converting Armenia into a parliamentary republic and setting himself up to be the first prime minister under this new system. And this triggers a nationwide protest and the protest leader is Nikol Pashinyan, a former journalist, um, editor of a newspaper, the Armenian Times, Haikakan Jamanak, who was known for his uh, exposés of corrupt politicians and was also closely associated with previous president, Levonter Petusian, uh, who had been an advocate of a more gradualist, negotiated uh, approach uh, to talks uh, with, with Azerbaijan. So, you know, I think there is this expectation in Azerbaijan that Pashinyan uh, would distance himself uh, from the position of his predecessors. He was the first uh, leader of uh, independent Armenia not to come to power as a result of the Karabakh conflict. Uh, He himself, obviously not from Karabakh, he's from Ijevan in northern Armenia. And for a while, there's a kind of a honeymoon. There are some tentative steps in the direction of confidence building, but it all sort of starts to go wrong, uh, I would say, in uh, uh, the summer of 2019. Uh, Nikol Pashinyan visits Karabakh, and there is this sort of uh, moment when uh, he is leading chants with the crowd that Karabakh is Armenia. Uh, and I think that's just uh, one moment uh, among, among many others uh, where we see uh, perhaps a, a lack of awareness of how to manage uh, uh, this this uh, this seminal uh, issue, a lack of experience, um, and a kind of uh, sort of intuitive uh, uh, approach, quite populistic approach as well. Nikol Pashinyan was essentially interested in democratization, in reform, in anti-corruption, um, and wanted perhaps also to distance himself from the previously negotiated packages. Uh, that constituted uh, uh, the content uh, uh, of the talks with with Azerbaijan. In uh, July 2020, uh, there is uh, a return to violence uh, with an incident uh, taking place in the area of international border uh, between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. And during that violence, uh, a very well-known Azerbaijani general uh, is killed, Polad Hashimov. And this results in spontaneous, unprecedented street protests in Baku. The crowd is essentially calling on President Ilham Aliyev uh, to punish Armenia 
to to go to war. And uh, I think this is a kind of the crucial moment. So these different dynamics in the Armenian-Azerbaijan context need to be seen also in the emergence of other uh, sort of multipolar dynamics, uh, in particular uh, sort of conflicts uh, in Syria, in Libya, uh, elsewhere, where we've seen how Russia and Turkey uh, have managed to reframe uh, complex settings, manage their differences in this kind of you know cooperative, competitive uh, framework, often referred to as frenemies or cooperation. And this is then what we see in September 2020. Turkey goes beyond the previous position of moral support, but becomes actively engaged uh, militarily. Uh, the timing is chosen specifically. Uh, it, it, it was perfectly timed for uh, a major military offensive. Uh, we were obviously in the pandemic at that time. We were in the final weeks for an American election. There were protests in Belarus. There was Brexit. Uh, there were a lot of different uh, issues uh, distracting global leadership. And what happens essentially is that Azerbaijan mounts a large-scale military offensive that achieves what many people, including myself, thought was, was unlikely, uh, a kind of a blitzkrieg that breaks through this heavily fortified line of contact, particularly along the southern flank, uh, along the border with Iran, and essentially retakes most of the territories that were lost in the early 90s. After various attempts at uh, negotiating a ceasefire, uh, the final and successful uh, ceasefire was brokered by Russia uh, on the 9th of November uh, 2020. And so what we see is this kind of really quite astonishing outcome where Russia sweeps in at the 13th hour, saves a, a sort of residual space of Karabakh, installs Russian boots on the ground, which it had long coveted and had long been proposing to the parties, and appears to be Eurasia's indispensable uh, security actor. So it was uh, an extremely intense war, uh, some 7,000 combatants uh, killed in action, uh, more than 150 uh, civilians. And obviously it was uh, an incredibly sort of traumatic and, and humiliating defeat uh, for Armenia, and uh, a, a reversal, a turning of the tables uh, for Azerbaijan. But critically, it is an incomplete victory. Azerbaijan still doesn't have complete sovereignty uh, over the entire territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. We've got about two-thirds two of the former autonomous region that is still uh, under Armenian control and supervised by Russian peacekeepers. So... Let's get up to, to the events of this week, and, and uh, there are some things I want to go back and, and talk about in terms of context, but let's talk about what's happened this week, and um, in particular, was this inevitable? Was this always where Azerbaijan was going, or do you think there was some thinking in, in Baku? I, I know, uh, you know Ilham Aliyev is uh, probably not the easiest uh, guy to predict his behavior, but do you think there was some thinking in Baku that they could negotiate a settlement after the 2020 war, or were we always going to, to was it always going to wind up uh, the way it did this week? I think to try and frame an answer to that, I think it's very important to distinguish the different scales or levels to this conflict. There is the interstate 
level of the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and there is the intrastate level of the conflict between the Karabakh Armenians and the Azerbaijani state. And when it comes to the interstate level, I think Azerbaijan is very much invested uh, in finally arriving at uh, an agreement uh, with Armenia that would finally, on paper, uh, formalize Armenia's recognition of its territorial integrity, including uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, and what we've seen is actually a quite intense periods of negotiations in, in recent months. Um, there have been two mediation tracks, one led by Russia, one led by the European Union and the United States. And I think there has been some uh, progress uh, achieved uh, in, in that direction. But when it comes to the intrastate level of the conflict, I think there hasn't been a sort of a, a concept there uh, for uh, arriving at a, a sort of a mediated agreement. The United States and the EU have been calling for, for that dialogue between Stepanakert and Kendi, Azerbaijanis, uh, and Baku to be internationally mediated. And Azerbaijan has said, no, this is our internal matter. We will deal with it our way. We've seen what that, what that way is now uh, after a nine-month blockade and the military offensive of this week. Um, I think uh, you know, the Azerbaijani understanding is also that uh, nothing else works. Uh, the Karabakh Armenian leadership have continued to insist on a status uh, separate from Azerbaijan and a number of meetings, scheduled meetings, planned meetings between representatives uh, of Baku and Stepanakert have fallen through in, in recent weeks. So I think there's this sense of, yeah, coercive diplomacy. We've, you know, the military offensive that we've seen this week is only the latest episode of a pretty much constant stream of violent escalations, some of them taking place in, in Karabakh, others taking place uh, since May 2021 along the international border uh, with, with Armenia. So to go back to your question, I think the paradigm is very much one of coercive bargaining. Yes, we want an agreement, but we want it on our terms and we are going to use coercion uh, to, to get there. And, you know, after the 2020 Second Karabakh War essentially took out uh, a lot of Armenian military capacity, there is a huge military asymmetry, uh, so there's no deterrent on the use of force. And then when you think about Russia's uh, evolving uh, circumstances from uh, November 2020, when it introduced its peacekeepers and appeared to be the winner, uh, as, as some observers had it, of the Second Karabakh War to uh, its reduced status and capacity following uh, the disastrous Ukraine war, uh, then you can see that violence has been a viable option. I, I, yeah, I want to, I, I want to, uh, we're going to do a little thing on Russia in a moment, but um, let's talk about what's happened this week. And I, I want to, you know, uh, be clear to everybody, we're recording on September 21st. So if the situation changes by the time you listen to this, that's why. Uh, but what do we know uh, in terms of where things stand at this point uh, in terms of uh, uh, what has happened and what have you heard? I know there's, you know, it's, it's Azerbaijan. The media environment is not terribly friendly. Uh, they've specifically blacked out this region in particular. Uh, so there are questions about casualties. I've seen, uh, you know, 
unconfirmed kind of scattered reports of things that that sound like war crimes, sound like atrocities going on. What do we know? And and then what have you heard beyond that? Well, uh, as you've alluded to, I think we have to be very careful with making clear knowledge claims. There is something of an emerging information vacuum in, in Karabakh because of uh, failing connectivity. People can't get through, can't communicate by phone uh, or internet. And that is an environment in which you know, wild stories can also run uh, without rapid verification. So what we know is that uh, on Tuesday morning, Azerbaijani forces launched a large-scale uh, offensive uh, which uh, was framed uh, by Azerbaijan as a kind of surgical strike approach to taking out the residual remaining units of, of what Azerbaijan frames as the Republic of Armenia's armed forces in Karabakh. I would frame them slightly differently as the remaining militias, if you will, of the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, Defense Army. Um, and uh, this was accompanied by quite intense uh, fighting uh, in some areas, um, the evacuation of certain peripheral communities and villages, and uh, yeah, a situation where you had Azerbaijani troops advancing on urban centers flooded with uh, displaced people. So really a very uh, uh, dangerous uh, uh, environment. The Karabakh Armenian forces uh, were able to resist for approximately uh, 24 hours. Uh, a ceasefire agreement uh, was agreed uh, yesterday. And the terms of that agreement uh, was that any equipment uh, or troops belonging to the Republic of Armenia need to, to go back to Armenia. The Nagorno-Karabakh Defense Army needs to completely uh, disband and disarm and hand over its weapons. And representatives uh, of the Karabakh Armenian population need to enter into talks on the terms of reintegration into Azerbaijani state and society. So it seemed overnight that the ceasefire was largely holding, but today from the late morning, there have been reports of shooting incidents, um, of checkpoints being set up, uh, of Azerbaijani troops uh, approaching uh, the center of Stepanakert. There have also been, as, as, as you alluded to, other unconfirmed reports uh, that suggest that there have been uh, atrocities uh, taking place, but it's really hard to, to confirm that. I would, I would want to wait until there's more confirmatory evidence before saying that something like that has, has definitely happened. Nevertheless, clearly, in light of the history that we've been discussing, ethnic cleansing is very much a clear and present danger. We don't have a precedent where territorial control has changed hands and representatives of one nationality have stayed on under the rule of the other. So, you know, the most recent uh, example is the fate of the Armenian communities in those areas of Nagorno-Karabakh that were taken over in 2020. Uh, so there is a, a town, Hadrut, that uh, fell to Azerbaijani forces during that conflict. And that community has had no opportunity to return to its hometown and has been living in displacement in Stepanakert and, and in Armenia. So I think the discussion about ethnic cleansing is not coming from a place 
of paranoia or hysteria. It is coming from a place uh, of precedent uh, in, in this conflict. As I said, I, I do want to talk about Russia and the role that, that Russia has played here. So why don't we, going back to Russia's, as you say, sweeping in at the end of the 2020 war, positioning itself as the, you know, or repositioning itself, restating its position as the uh, the dominant political force in, in the South Caucasus, setting itself up with, with peacekeepers and, you know, as the sort of guarantor of, of that ceasefire. And then the Ukraine war happened. And... It seems like uh, the Russians have had uh, nothing to do here. And I, I do, you know, we can talk about, you know, the, the bigger geopolitics of this, which we'll get to in a, in a minute, which seems to favor Azerbaijan in general. But, but Russia's role here really seems like one of setting itself up in a position as peacekeeping, you know, with peacekeeping. You know, obviously there's the treaty relationship with Armenia, which I know, uh, the Russians always insist does not include Karabakh and, and they're not, you know, not responsible for coming to, to Karabakh's aid. But what have we seen uh, in, in the performance of the Russians, particularly in the last several months in terms of the blockade that, that Azerbaijan set up on the corridor, the Lachin corridor connecting Karabakh to Armenia? That seems, you know, partly intended to sort of isolate Karabakh and maybe weaken it. But also it seemed like it was a test of how far the, the Azerbaijanis could go without drawing a Russian response. And maybe uh, I wonder how much that might have played into the decision to finally go to war here because they, they, the Russians really haven't responded. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting to uh, observe that this is another aspect where Karabakh conflict differs from the other conflicts uh, of its cohort. Russia's approach to the conflict has uh, generally been based on a founding principle of avoiding choice between Armenia uh, and Azerbaijan, not taking sides, in total contrast uh, to its roles uh, in, in Georgia's conflicts in Abkhazia, South Ossetia, uh, or Moldova and Transnistria, uh, to say nothing, of course, uh, of the war in Ukraine. And I think what we've been seeing essentially is that this founding principle has been stretched and stretched and stretched to the point where it's pretty much now broken. So, yeah, I would describe Russia's uh, situation here as one of constrained hegemony. The 2020 post-war ceasefire architecture was very much uh, Russia's design. Uh, Russia is the guardian of the uh, ceasefire statement from November 2020. Uh, but already from May 2021, we see Azerbaijan testing Russia's ceasefire, uh, doing that uh, in Karabakh, but also along the border with, with Armenia. So this is already a, a sort of an emerging trend. Uh, for reasons that we've discussed, the 2020 victory was incomplete. Azerbaijan is a country that uh, prides itself on the fact that Russian bases left the country already uh, in the 1992-1993 period, uh, and the last Russian military installations were uh, removed from the country in, in 2013, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the Gabala uh, radar uh, station. Now, after February 2022, that gives much greater scope for Azerbaijan to challenge uh, Russia's ceasefire uh, arrangements, and we see that in a number 
uh, of escalations in March and in August in, in Nagorno-Karabakh and then the September uh, 2022 attack uh, on Armenia itself. You know, that really showed Russia up. Russia could marshal legalistic arguments as to why it didn't get involved in 2020 because the combat was taking place in Nagorno-Karabakh. But a direct attack on Armenia itself, of course, should trigger those uh, reciprocal defense clauses in not only in Russia's bilateral treaties uh, with Armenia, but uh, the collective uh, security uh, uh, article of the collective security treaty organization, the Russian-led uh, equivalent to NATO, uh, of which Armenia is a founding uh, member. So we're really beginning to see that you know, Azerbaijan uh, is able uh, to really push the envelope in terms of challenging uh, Russia, and it effectively starts to deconstruct and to revise the ceasefire architecture introduced in November 2020. We see that with the bringing forward of the timing of the rerouting of the Lachin Corridor. Uh, we see that in, in, in ceasefire violations, of course, and we see that in the installation of uh, an Azerbaijani checkpoint on the uh, Lachin Corridor on the 23rd of April uh, of, of this year. This directly contradicts uh, what Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov had said just a few weeks previously, uh, that we do not foresee a need for checkpoints in this situation. So, uh, yes, there's been this sort of testing and a lack of reaction, a lack of leverage or capacity or will on Russia's part to punish Azerbaijan or to, to, uh, to react. And of course, this owes to the dramatically changing geopolitics emerging from the Ukraine war, in particular Turkey's very important role in that conflict uh, for Russia, Azerbaijan's importance as a key node in any post-Ukraine war connectivity uh, for Russia, uh, obviously particularly important on a north-south corridor linking Russia uh, to its ally, Iran. Um, uh, and also, uh, yeah, we see Russia just in general more beholding uh, to Turkic uh, interests. Um, and I think this is a key sort of background factor as to why we, we've seen uh, the Russian, uh, Russian acquiescence uh, with these, these various moves. Um, the blockade, in a sense, was also, uh, also showed the Russian peacekeeping mission up. They were not able to, to stop that, to get around it. Um, they were bringing in their resupplies uh, by helicopter. So yeah, an evolving geopolitical uh, set of equations. More broadly, I mean, it's it, Russia's sort of the the most obvious case because uh, there are these treaty relations with with Armenia and the fact that uh, R Russia took on the role of peacekeeper or guarantor after 2020, and uh, you know has just starkly kind of uh, not fulfilled those roles. But more broadly, uh, I wonder if you could talk about the geopolitics here. It strikes me that um, Armenia seems to have a lot of countries that are prepared to talk about supporting it, the United States, the France, other countries in, in Europe, uh, but none of them are really willing to do anything that might alienate Azerbaijan for reasons that, that you've already talked about. It's, it's energy importance, um, you know, just kind of, uh, you know, other factors. So, you know, apart from the support that it gets, the direct support it gets from Turkey, it, it, it seems like just 
generally speaking, nobody wants to support Armenia to the point where they might alienate uh, Aliyev and, and Baku. Yeah, I, I think that's more or less right. Um, Armenia is extremely isolated. Um, and I think, you know, we're seeing the unintended consequences, perhaps, of some strategic decisions that were made a long time ago um, by uh, the Armenian leadership, uh, and in particular, uh, by the Karabakh Armenian leaders that became leaders uh, of, of Armenia. Um, so, uh, yeah, there is, I think, uh, a profound sense uh, of disillusionment and disappointment, certainly with many uh, states in Europe um, uh, on the part of Armenia. As you say, there are very few entities or states that are really willing to, to, to step up and to walk the walk rather than just talk the talk. And there's a sense of disappointment in Armenia that you know, we've committed to Western values, uh, to, uh, to democracy, uh, we are fighting uh, autocratic states, and yet you've left us high and dry uh, with no support. Um, so this is not the first time this has happened in the Caucasus. I think Georgia went through kind of a similar process. And I think it's, it's um, there's obviously so many reasons behind it, but I think we could, we could argue that in the South Caucasus, it's a, it's a very ambiguous space where Western interests are not that clearly defined. The European Union, for instance, doesn't necessarily have a very clear concept of its role in, in the region. There isn't a regional policy as such. The three countries are part of the Eastern Partnership. Um, the South Caucasus uh, is really, the way I would frame it, is as a multi-facing periphery where actually we see that the various prospective and would-be hegemons are operating at the limits of their power in different ways. Uh, so Russia's uh, would-be hegemony has been exposed. Uh, I think uh, the European Union's kind of normative hegemony or aspiration to that uh, has also been exposed. Um, uh, and uh, to a lesser extent, uh, I think Turkey is actually the state that's actually been able to, uh, to generate the outcomes uh, that it has been uh, looking to achieve. Uh, I think there are two sort of exceptions uh, to this broader pattern uh, of Armenia's isolation. The first is uh, the rather ambiguous support coming from Iran. Um, Iran is the third regional power, uh, but was really left as a bystander uh, in 2020. Um, uh, Iran, uh, I'm not an Iran expert, so this is somewhat impressionistic uh, uh, analysis. Iran didn't really have a South Caucasus policy. Uh, before 2020, uh, and and found itself in this rather uh, role as a bystander, and rather uncomfortable, I think, with some of the outcomes of the 2020 war. And I think it it sees itself as a potential loser uh, with regard to some of the connectivity schemes, in particular, this notion of a corridor that would connect Azerbaijan and its exclave in in Nakhchivan. Uh, that has been framed often as a kind of uh, a geopolitical project uh, that could potentially leave uh, or obstruct uh, the connectivity between Armenia uh, and, and Iran. Um, the key role of Israel, of course, as an arms supplier uh, to Azerbaijan is another irritant in the relationship uh, with, with, with Iran um, for Azerbaijan. 
And also, of course, you've got very substantial ethnic Azerbaijani minority. It's such a big population, it's a bit strange to refer to it as a minority. And I think the leadership in Iran was perhaps surprised at the extent of popular mobilization amongst Iranian Azerbaijanis in support of Azerbaijan uh, in 2020. So what we've seen is some saber rattling uh, coming from Iran with war games uh, kind of directed as messages to Azerbaijan. And there have also been some very clear statements saying that Armenia's territorial integrity is our red line and that Iran will oppose any efforts to violate uh, Armenia's territorial integrity. So that's the, the Iranian side. Obviously, a close relationship with Iran uh, raises all kinds of issues in terms of Armenia's other relationships, particularly with Western uh, partners. Uh, so it is quite a, uh, an ambiguous relationship. The other exception is, of course, the mobilization of an EU monitoring mission, UMA, uh, EU monitoring in Armenia, mission to Armenia, sorry, uh, which was deployed in February of this year after a smaller, earlier capacity building mission. And this is a, a civilian monitoring mission, unarmed, uh, that monitors the border uh, with Azerbaijan. Uh, and I think many people were really surprised that the EU mobilized this mission so quickly after the September uh, 2022 attacks uh, on, on the country. And I think it's, it's, it's interesting because it shows that when we're talking about state-on-state state violence, there, there is a different set of parameters and triggers, and there was a much stronger international reaction as opposed to when a state uh, uses coercion uh, against national minorities. So I just have a, a couple more kind of summing up questions that um, you know may ask you to do a little projection. But why don't we start actually in Armenia with uh, Nikol Pashinyan's political status at this point? I mean, you talked a bit about his background, which is not from the Karabakh movement or not from Karabakh itself. Uh, he's sort of been... Uh, I guess somewhat ambiguous about Karabakh, and has uh, obviously there are, there's opposition in Armenia from the Karabakh community uh, toward him, uh, but he he's remained popular despite that, or seems to have, seems to have remained popular despite that. Now it, it strikes me there's a difference between being, you know, maybe somewhat ambiguous on the Karabakh question and being the the prime minister who lost Karabakh in a sense. Uh, so do, would you expect that his status politically is going to take a hit from this? And what could that mean for Armenian politics moving forward? Yes, the, the prime minister that lost Karabakh. I'm not sure whether he, I mean, he, he already had that status, right? In, right. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of the, talking about not not just, you know, as you as you alluded to earlier, the this the, the the history of ethnic cleansing in this conflict and seeing scenes of Karabakh Armenians kind of flooding Russian bases or flooding airports and fleeing. Those are powerful images. Yes. And they don't just evoke the history of this conflict. They evoke the Armenian genocide, which is something we haven't talked about. But certainly, you know, on, on an emotional level, that's that's got to play into this as well. And I just wonder, you know, how much of Pashinyan's popularity is going to suffer now or his public support is going to suffer from people seeing those images and attributing 
some portion of the blame for that to him. For sure, there will be visceral criticism and anger uh, directed uh, at, at Nikol Pashinyan. But my sense is that uh, while there are uh, strident critiques of uh, his conflict policy prior to 2020, um, and uh, some of the uh, uh, tactics since then, um, my sense is that there is still this fundamental understanding amongst a critical mass of people in Armenia that the situation that the country is in owes just as much, if not more, and probably more, to these long-term strategic decisions that were taken by the previous leadership uh, of Armenia. And, and so while Pashinyan can be sort of held to account, certainly for the tactics that have resulted in unfavorable outcomes, the deeper strategy was already set uh, before he became prime minister and it would be very difficult for him to have all unraveled uh, that. We've already seen that you know, there are protests, there will be more protests, but I think Pashinyan's uh, survival uh, will also be related to the fact that we still have this opposition that is associated precisely with that former regime that people hold uh, first and foremost accountable uh, for uh, Ar Armenia's predicament. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's very striking that uh, Ashinyan won a landslide victory in May uh, 2021, just after defeat in, in the Second Karabakh War. More recent electoral outcomes in the recent mayoral elections show a, a different picture, declining popularity and a, just a general sense of, of, of rejection of all candidates, very, very low uh, turnout. Um, but I think for as long as the alternative to Nikol Pashinyan is the, is the previous regime, uh, that uh, that is going to, uh, to be a, a central element uh, in, in his survival. Uh, what I do worry about is the prospect of a return uh, of political violence uh, to Armenia. There is a, a history of this from you know, major assassinations uh, and other incidents. Um, and so I think this some kind of destabilization uh, along those lines could be a threat. But uh, yeah, I think the bottom line is that any pro-Russian faction I don't think could keep power, couldn't stay in power in today's Armenia. My second, so my, my second kind of wrap up question is, is, you know, naturally about the prospects for reintegrating or integrating, depending on your point of view, Karabakh and the Armenian population into Azerbaijan. Uh, there are talks apparently underway. Uh, they've already held a first kind of uh, opening session. Aliyev has talked about peacefully reintegrating the Armenians, but Aliyev, you know, is an autocrat with a not so great human rights record. So there are reasons to be concerned here that uh, he doesn't really mean it when he talks about integration. And, and the, the Armenians, the Karabakh Armenians, are uh, almost literally now negotiating at the point of a gun. So I, I just wonder what you uh, anticipate or how you anticipate these talks going and the prospects for an actual peaceful stitching together of Karabakh in, into uh, Azerbaijan. Yeah, well, right, right now it is 
all but impossible uh, to imagine that in the immediate aftermath of a military offensive coming after a nine-month blockade. Uh, these are not the ideal conditions uh, from which to uh, start a negotiation on an incredibly delicate and sensitive issue uh, like the reintegration integration uh, of this of this population. Um, I think another aspect here that I would highlight, which is another kind of a dysfunction in in the process, is that you know I think the Azerbaijani government does have a package that it wants to now share with with Karabakh Armenians. But that package has been developed in a complete vacuum. Uh, they've been very secretive about it. There's been no consultation with Azerbaijani civil society, no consultation with international partners, and of course, no, no consultation with the Karabakh Armenians. So this is very much Azerbaijan's, you know, the Azerbaijani state vision uh, of what it, what it would mean to be a minority uh, in, in Azerbaijan. Um, now, of course, Azerbaijan does have other minorities. Uh, uh, it frames itself as a multicultural society with a civic, territorially oriented nationalism. That's the official doctrine. I think there's been a quite dramatic sort of Turkic turn associated with the Second Karabakh War. Um, but uh, you know, the Karabakh Armenians are a specific case. There's this history of the conflict uh, and security guarantees are key. And uh, yeah, I think we need to see how things are going to develop over, over the next uh, few days uh, and weeks. I think there's a sort of an underlying question. Does Azerbaijan want any Karabakh Armenians to stay, um, given, given the history? Uh, another factor here is that uh, the continued presence of Karabakh Armenians is tied into geopolitical considerations around the continued presence of Russian peacekeepers uh, to monitor uh, uh, their, their existence um, in, uh, in Azerbaijan. So on the other hand, if all Karabakh Armenians leave, then you've got you know, you know, uh, a vulnerability to accusations of ethnic cleansing. So I wonder whether there's a kind of a landing zone uh, amongst all of these different agendas of a kind of smaller symbolic presence that would allow Azerbaijan to say, there's been no ethnic cleansing here or Armenians, that would allow a downsizing of the Russian mission from 2,000 peacekeepers perhaps to 50 or 100 integration monitors uh, that would uh, satisfy Azerbaijani aspirations to reduce a Russian presence. It would also save Russia's face. Um, but what about the Karabakh Armenians themselves? You know, what do they want? Um, and I think what we perhaps underestimate is that for many of them, Armenia is not necessarily a natural homeland or, or a place that they would gravitate to. Um, uh, there is a very negative uh, experience with the 360,000 refugees, Armenian refugees from Soviet Azerbaijan, uh, many of whom then moved on to, to Russia. They were not made to feel very welcome uh, when they arrived in Armenia, and there was just a lack of capacity uh, to really uh, implement any meaningful uh, integration uh, programs. And they, they are one of the sort of the forgotten uh, voices of the 1990s conflict. Um, and the other issue is that presumably, if Karabakh Armenians moving into Armenia, they would be resettled in Sunik, 
which has itself become a very securitized space due to border incidents, Azerbaijani incursions, and this this threat that uh, this trans-southern Armenia uh, transit corridor or route will be imposed by force. So, you know, there's a there's a risk. There's, there's not a sense of moving into a safe space. There's a, a sense of moving into another you know, conflict setting. Um, so I think uh, it's it's very much a sort of an, an equation of choosing between the lesser of, of two evils. Uh, on the Azerbaijani side, can the, their commitments be made credible? You know, there's uh, uh, it's very delicate, and any sort of proven atrocities are are going to be hugely damaging uh, in that respect. Uh, and uh, just as a as a final question, I, I feel like I have to ask, but I'm I'm almost reluctant to because I think it depends to a great extent on what happens to Karabakh. But what could this mean for negotiations between Armenia and Azerbaijan in, in terms of normalization, and uh, Armenia and Turkey, which is going on a, on a parallel sort of process? Uh, I know the the issue of a the Azerbaijan's desire for a corridor through Armenian territory to Nakhchivan is is a huge issue and one that is obviously very sensitive. With what's happened in Karabakh, do you feel like that that's? I mean, obviously, it's going to change how those negotiations proceed. But I, I sort of, I mean, I wonder how you think that might manifest. Well, I think the immediate challenge is to keep the interstate level negotiations going. Um, you know, they will be hugely destabilized now. Um, and as I mentioned before, uh, there has been some progress at that interstate level. Uh, there are different baskets of issues, which I think Armenia and Azerbaijan do want to come to an agreement on, uh, whether that is resolving some of the pending humanitarian issues, including from the first war, such as missing persons, to the delimitation of, of borders, to uh, new connectivity infrastructure. But it's going to be very difficult uh, for Nikol Pashinyan, for the reasons that you outlined earlier, uh, to to proceed uh, with those. Um, so I think that's going to be uh, the uh, sort of immediate challenge. But what it means for uh, Armenian-Turkish normalization and I'm not a I'm not a Turkey export, but we, what we have seen repeatedly is that the core red lines and parameters of Turkey's Armenia policy are are contingent on Azerbaijan's red lines and parameters. And so, I think what we could see is a situation where you know Armenian uh, Turkish normalization becomes contingent and connected to the outcomes that Azerbaijan would like to see in terms of regional connectivity, including this project of the Zangezur Corridor. So I, I, I fear that we may see sort of a new iteration of Turkish-Armenian normalization being blocked because of Armenian-Azerbaijani issues. And that's, in many ways, ironic, because it 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 means that Turkey doesn't have a regional policy for the South Caucasus. It has a, a sort of a geopolitical patron-client uh, relationship, where in which direction the influence is flowing uh, is, is, I think, uh, a matter uh, of discussion. Uh, Turkey does, of course, have a good relationship uh, with 
Georgia and Azerbaijan in terms of the various uh, gas and oil pipelines. Um, but its its relationship with Armenia seems to be subordinated uh, to uh, the relationship with, with Azerbaijan. And, and that, that historically has meant that Russia's got more influence in Armenia. So yes, it, it, these are the patterns of regional fracture. Uh, it's all about uh, external powers combining uh, with some but not other regional actors uh, to reproduce uh, this fragmented pattern uh, rather than the emergence of a combined regional governance that would bring together the three states at the South Caucasus. Lawrence Brower's Associate Fellow at the uh, Chatham House and author of Armenia and Azerbaijan, Anatomy of a Rivalry. Thank you so much. Again, this was short notice and I have kept you even longer than I thought I was going to. So I apologize for that. But thank you so much for being so generous with your time. There are obviously so many more things we could discuss here, and and we would love to have you back on the program to do that at some point. Well, thank you very much, Derek. It's been a pleasure.